0: Hey, this is Harrison Oswald from the Cinematic Arts and Production Club at UC Berkeley, and this is episode three of The Real, featuring Jim Cummins. Well, Jim, I just want to thank you again for sitting down with us today. Um, we're all really excited to be able to talk to you and learn your insight. Um, and you are an inspiration of mine, and your work is just fantastic. Um, love all your movies. And so you are kind of a renaissance man of filmmaking. You've tried your hands at many different facets of the industry, whether that be acting, directing, producing, writing, even composing, uh, I've read. and so. Also, your story is very unique and is an inspiration, kind of a dream for many upcoming filmmakers. You know, um, your short film, Thunder Road, um, which you produced independently, um, went on to win the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And from there, you were able to make the adaptation um, of Thunder Road into a feature. And it went on to win South by Southwest uh, Grand Jury Prize as well, which is just fantastic. And so. Um, From there, you've developed the Short Feature Lab, which helps aspiring filmmakers follow your similar path. And you've got two uh, films, two great films that are, uh, well, The Wolf of Snow Hollow is out. It's great. Um, The beta test is hoping to be out soon. Can't wait to see it. Um, And so let's just go ahead and jump right in. And uh, you can let me know if I've uh, missed anything or if you want to include anything.
1: No, that was Um, great. That's better than I could have done. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, I guess the first thing I kind of want to ask you is, when did you
1: first know you wanted to go into film? Um, I don't know. I think I. I mean, I remember watching The Matrix as a kid, and that was a that was a big deal to me because it was rated R, and we had it on VHS, and like my brother would always play it at his slumber parties, and I wasn't allowed to watch it. And so then that became the thing that I would sneak in and watch, um, and so. I mean, that movie was a huge inspiration to me just because of how big and insane and wonderful that masterpiece is. Um, and then I got the box set of Fight Club, uh, the like two disc box set from uh, from Blockbuster, and just loved it and watched it a thousand times. Same with Royal Ten and Bob. So this would have been like, I must have been probably 14, maybe 13. And then we got an iMac, and uh, my sister used to ride horses, and so we would always, like, my dad got a camera to film her just like, so she could, you know, practice riding horses. And then uh, I would just steal it and make, you know, shitty Matrix recreations of bullet time and stuff like that. And uh, and so, like, at 13 and 14, I was already basically doing what I do every day still of ingesting footage and editing it and trying to impress people. Um So at that age, I knew that I was going to be a very talented mini-DV filmmaker. (laughs) Uh, And then, I don't know, I I got to the age that you get to when people start asking you what you want to do with your life. And I I wasn't really good at anything else. I was really bad at math. I got like a 1,300 or 1,200 on my SATs. I wasn't a very good student, but I watched 1,000 movies. And I would go to... Blockbuster and just rent all the Criterion Collection movies that I could, and uh, and that became my film education. And then I got into Emerson in Boston and went. But really, the big takeaway that I had from that education was just the teams of people that were competing against each other at these like local, you know, college film festivals. And if Danny Madden was making a short film, mine had better be better than his. Uh, and so it was just this kind of sibling rivalry that we still have to this day. I've known the guy for 16 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that became kind of the, the real time that I realized I, I should be a filmmaker. And then I left school in 2009, uh, and I graduated and went back to New Orleans and shot uh, a feature film that failed miserably. I got my, my friends to come down uh, from college and we stayed in my parents' house. It's like eight or nine of us, and we had like three weeks and we shot this movie called No Flood Wall Heroes, about post-Katrina New Orleans. And it was just painful. It was bad. I spent a year and a half editing it, and I became a failed filmmaker. Uh, and it was soul-crushing. It was the worst feeling in the world where I wanted to make something so impressive, and it was just very boring, and I assumed that the audience would be interested in the characters, or the subject, or whatever. And uh, And then I produced for about five or six years for my buddies... I met a rapper named Lil Dicky, and I produced three of his music videos for my buddy from school, Tony Ascenda, who directed those music videos. And then that got me a job at College Humor. But there was about a five- or six-year period, or seven-year period, where I wasn't doing anything as a writer and director. I was just helping friends who were being successful to, to get them to the next level. And then I was working at College Humor, doing these sketch videos three times a week that weren't really that funny and weren't really that important. And I was like, fuck it, just let me, I'll just try it. What's the worst that can happen? And I had a 45-minute commute to there and a 45-minute commute home. And I hated this guy that I worked with because I thought he was so cheesy and not funny. And I was like, I'm going to make something that's really profound and beautiful and challenging and different than all of this other stuff. Um, I'm going to use all of the pain that I went through making movies and not being taken seriously and failing a lot. And then that really became me being a filmmaker of like, I I knew that if I challenged myself enough and if I was ambitious enough to impress an audience and make something undeniable over the duration of 12 minutes, something that I could afford, um, that that would be a wonderful uh, fuck you or a good proof of concept (laughs) at least. So I I always cite that that was like the real formative prime that I had. I was 29 years old um, and that would have been late 2015.
0: And did that birth uh, Thunder Road short?
1: Yeah, yeah, big yeah. time. So, like, I, on, okay. that, on that drive, I had a radio in the car so I could play Thunder Road and then do the, um, the monologue, the kind of, like, soliloquy and um, eulogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew what it was going to be about. I knew it was going to have to be something. I thought about, you know, what would happen if my mom passed away and what I would do and all of that. It really hit me as a 29-year-old way late in life um, that I should make something that was <clears> – <throat> excuse me, I'm not crying – I have something in my throat. Um, I'll cry later. But uh, no, I was thinking about uh, what that would be like if if, um, if if you lost somebody. And a few family members of mine had passed away recently. And I was thinking about how humiliating it would be to bomb a eulogy. And I hadn't seen that done before. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is making me laugh. But it's also really making me cry. This is like the Pixar movies that I love so much. This is like Inside Out. And I was like, I could do a live-action Pixar movie... And if, you know, I have 24-hour access to the lead actor, if I just work on humiliating myself as much as possible, <laughs> that will be really endearing for audiences. And if I can do it, I just kept on throwing challenges at myself. I was like, it has to be one shot. It has. You have to feel present in the experience of being mm-hmm. in this room. It has to have very complicated dance routine. It has to be very funny and very tragic. There's to be a lot of memorized lines. It has to be really well-performed. And then it, it also has a, have to have a very copywritten song. <laughs> so, like, you yeah. could never <laughs> release it. Um, yes. And, and I just... It was making me laugh. It was making me cry. Both my parents are lawyers. And they were like, you can't use the song. And I was like, what if I just did, though? Like, what's the worst? where we going to get into trouble? Is Bruce Springsteen going to call us or something? <laughs> and then... It just got to the point where they were like, "You should use a karaoke version of the song." And I was like, "Fuck it!" This guy, this cop, he would do this. He would use the song. It'd be a mix CD or whatever. Let's just do it. And I did it. And then it's one shot. You can't take it out. Um, whatever. To answer your question, um, that was th- writing that short film became the case study and crucible of me realizing what is possible with American independent film and how you literally can make movies in your backyard that uh hit the world stage and i've i haven't turned back since
0: well that's fantastic and famously you take on a lot of roles you wrote directed and acted within this thunder road short as well as the feature and what i'm really curious about is how you were able to kind of turn off the director side of your brain turn off like the former producer side and kind of like fit into an acting role and vice versa. Are you able to kind of flip the switch and kind of change in between roles?
1: Oh, I'm a really bad actor. <laughs> I think like the only reason I'm any good is by rehearsing it a thousand times. And I rehearse it a thousand mm-hmm. times more than any trained actor would because I, have, I feel completely inadequate in my abilities as a performer. And so I have to do it a thousand times for it to be any good. So there's n- never any improv in any of our films. Um, it's all very forensic in its delivery. Every syllable matters. Um, I record all of our screenplays as podcasts like this, and then I'll mix it together with music and sound design so the whole cast and crew can hear the movie before we show up on set. It's like kind of done. We just have to execute it in, you know, on set. Um, I, but I'm a, I, I don't think I'm a very good actor because I'm so bad at living in the moment. It's all you know, pre-written and pre, pre-described. Um, so I'm really bad at that. And also I can't get rid of my producer hat. So I I think the best title for me is just like filmmaker because I'm still so close to my producers where like the best example is this one day where Natalie Metzger, my producer, we were in Austin. She was like, does it have to actually be a police station? I was like, well, it should be be a police station. I was shooting this cop movie. It should be a police station. And and then she was like, well, it's $15,000 a day to get the lobby and the locker room of this police station. Is there anything that we need? And it took me hearing that to go, no, I just need a wall with a blue line on it and some like cop stuff and a circulation desk. And then that's it. And, like, we can just shoot it in close-up and then get the wide shot and have some cops walk by in the foreground and then I'll put in the sound design of a police station and that'll work. And then the joke after that became Natalie's joke of um, how many producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, does it have to be a light bulb? Um, (laughs) And it's so true. Like, almost every production meeting that I have, I'm constantly compromising with that stuff. But that means that, uh, like, if we can save 15 grand here that means we get the dope location or the lenses that I need for the last week of shooting. Um, And that's just like an ongoing conversation about the budget and the schedule that I find really fulfilling to be a part of. Sometimes I'm the only person that can answer those questions. And so, although I might be rehearsing with someone in a car to shoot some complicated scene, uh, Natalie would come up and knock and say like, hey, can you approve this Airbnb real quick? Okay, great. Moving on. (laughs)
0: I guess which one of your roles that you take on, uh, out of your roles, what would be your favorite and what would be your least favorite and why, if you had to pick?
1: I love directing because when, I mean, anybody who's directed and listening to this knows what I'm talking about. When you're on set, you feel so alive because of the rush of actually capturing something that's going to live in the movie forever. Um, and so it feels constantly like you're capturing a touchdown as a team of like, it feels like football or something like that, where it's this collaborative endeavor. And when you capture the lightning in a bottle, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we got it. And it's so fulfilling and such an endorphin rush. Um, I, I love it. And so I, I think directing is probably the thing that if you, if you had to put a gun in my head, I would say that's probably the best that that's that's my favorite thing to do.
0: Well, more of a technical question now um what do you think in se- the most essential tool for you is when you make a film, and do you have a filmmaking technique of yours that's like kind of a favorite to employ
1: um I am really I'm very glad that I have Adobe Creative Cloud. I know that's a very nerdy answer, but um <laughs> it just raises the ceiling of possibilities for me because I know that software, like the fact that I am I am relatively proficient in um, Premiere or in Audition or in After Effects now um, since the beginning of the pandemic, um, that I know what the final look of the movie is going to be and how to put things together. So like literally I can be on set and then talk to the assistant editor and we can throw together a scene and make sure that we got it before we leave Utah. Um I think that's a really essential tool that I've... Learning how to edit has raised the ceiling of my abilities as a, as a filmmaker. And I learned how to edit when I was y'all's age. I was in, I was in school or just after school. Um, and just, I, I think really, yeah, having, having something where you can actively change the movie while you're making it is very valuable to me.
0: So you think it's being able to edit has really impacted your uh, journey as a director?
1: Oh, yeah, and everything else. Like, there are moments where me thinking about the edit advises the way that the film is shot. And, like, reading any book about Hitchcock, he was doing the exact same thing. Or, like, Edgar Wright is so notorious for that, where the movie yeah. is has to be edited before they go out and shoot, where it's like it's the shots lead into each other perfectly, and that's, that's filmmaking, that is craftsmanship. Um, and so there are moments in <laughs> Wolf of Snow Hollow and in the new one, the beta test, where, like, I am the writer, director, actor, editor, sound designer, and there are moments where like, I'll be leaving one frame in the library and I'll turn my head to the right and we'll cut it there and the next scene is me turning my head to the right and I'm in a new location. And it's like the weirdest way to craft a thing, but it works. And that can only work if you're you're basing the movie off of the biology of the lead actor. And you can never (laughs) do that normally, Um, but it it works for us.
0: So after Thunder Road, I know you developed the Short to Feature Lab, um, and so I was wondering, what do you look for in a short film that showcases potential or promise?
1: Craftsmanship, uh, that's a big one. To 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 see a filmmaker who uses the camera to help tell the story, um, or the sound design to help tell the story. Um, so there's been this. So we've had the Short to Feature Lab submissions open for three years. We've had two labs. One of them was in January of 2020. Um, and the new one is coming up in the next couple of months whenever everybody gets vaccinated. Um, but I watch every submission to the lab. Every film that gets submitted every year, I, I watch personally. And we get a lot of short films that are disguised as public service announcements about a certain cause. And, and I think that as, as young filmmakers, they think that that is something that is going to be celebrated rather than the craftsmanship of making the movie. Um, so basically any cause that you can imagine that is in the public sphere or in the media, we get, you know, 500 short films based on them. And so like, it, it's really interesting to to see films that are based on the tradition of short stories of like it actually being a film that happens to be shorter um, where it's about characters going through something um, with setup and payoff or you know surprising inevitability or any of the things that you'd see in a, in a feature film but i i think craftsmanship is always the one that we go to of like and that's always a difficult thing it's like that quote of what is pornography i'll know it when i'll see it um it's it's that kind of thing it's like you can tell something is fantastic only after you know watching everything that isn't
0: did you have the impression after shooting thunder road the short that you had exhibited this same craftsmanship, or did you just kind of hope that you had shown uh, showcased this before you sent it off to Sundance?
1: I knew it was good, only mm-hmm. not because I put so much work into it. I was really happy with it. Um, I spent a couple of months, like a probably a month, doing sound design. It's all one shot, so it's like I couldn't do much editing. Um, but I did some work on it. I did some coloring, and I, I did, you know, I I did it from this laptop, from this very MacBook Air I'm talking to you from. Um, and it, I did it for my little sad apartment and spent you know, four weeks or whatever editing the thing. I, I, I submitted it to late to Sundance. I got a, a deadline waiver, very luckily, because I reached out to a programmer on Twitter, and I was like, I'm begging you. We shot this thing past the deadline. Is there any way I can submit? And she said, um, I'm so sorry I'm getting to this a week late. We get 500 requests a day. Uh, use this code. You can submit, and you know, best of luck. And uh, I submitted... And then I kept on uploading new versions every twelve hours or every twenty-four hours to Vimeo, because you can replace the video in that functionality. Cause I never knew when they were gonna watch it. So I was like, well, it should be the newest fucking version of the movie. Yeah. Sunday that's when I might watch it. Um, and so I did that for, you know, three weeks, four weeks. And then I had like kind of close to final cut and I was like, okay, I'm just I'm not even gonna think about it. And then I got a phone call, you know, three weeks later. Um, but no, I knew it was good. It was based on, you know, all the Hemingway short stories that I loved. And I had already been seeing short films on Short of the Week that had screened at Sundance and South by Southwest. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Short of the Week has channels. If you look up Short of the Week channel South by Southwest or channel Sundance or Can, or whatever, you can just see the short films that were programmed at those film festivals. And it's a really incredible education as to what actually is considered culturally and socially significant short filmmaking by the people who watch everything. And that was a really helpful education for me. I always go back to that website as well just to see what else is good and came out recently um, as inspiration. So I knew that Thunder Road was built in the tradition of those um, films and what was getting appreciated in film festivals. Um, But, you know, it's me, like, dancing in the church and spitting on the ground and all kinds of weird shit. So I was like... for first and foremost, it was something that was making me and my team laugh, and that's yeah. all that
0: really mattered. Well, it worked. Um, so you discussed your uh, writing process a little bit, and you are able to blend together so many genres, whether it be comedy, drama, or even horror in The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, and so I wanted to kind of discuss your unique writing process and kind of like this process of recording a podcast uh, for, for your set. and. How do you exactly know when something sticks or what works and what doesn't?
1: Um thank you. That's a good question. So I'll record so I'll have a script and I'm like, this is the best thing in the world. This is amazing. And I'll like, you know, set it up in a PDF and I'll read it like this in this very space actually. I recorded the TV show that we did with the Zoom microphone in this sad closet. Uh yeah. but it's it's really helpful because sometimes most people when people write something, um, the first time that they hear it ever read out loud is when the actor is doing it at the table read or the first day of production, and so it takes them that long to realize that it sucks and like it doesn't sound good coming out of human vocal cords, so by reading it out loud, I've found it to be incredibly freeing and helpful to be like, "No, this is taking too long. this scene should be half its length. Um, you can kind of hear it uh, you know it's like it, it's just audio storytelling instead of it just being words on a page. And so I find it to be incredibly helpful. Like I remember hearing that Peter Jackson shot the entirety of Fellowship of the Ring with little green army men because he was sitting around for eight years in prep doing this thing. He was like, "All right, well, it's just I'm just going to shoot it with green army men because that's easy, and then we'll just throw Elijah Wood in and we'll replace him. It'll be easy." <laughs> um, and so I kind of got that as a as inspiration to be like, "Oh no, there are no rules. You can do it. You can do it this way." And it's been incredibly um, helpful to me. Of you know. There are times when a scene is just sad and it's, it's not working. And um, I'm like, okay, let's make this funny. Like, it doesn't have to be so morose or vice versa. Of Like, oh, this is trying to be funny and it's not important. Let's, how, do we, how do we humiliate this character more? Um, so, yeah, I, I find it to be just like a really great, you know, beta test for what the movie could be. And you find it out loud easier than I ever did in writing it.
0: In terms of writing, what do you think defines a strong story and character?
1: Oh, I don't know, man. So I would say, like, to me, my favorite short films are always watching characters go through the most important minutes of their lives, um, whatever that may mean. Um, There's a really great short film called Caroline. I don't know if you all have seen it. Um, It's on Vimeo. It, it It was the only American short film in Cannes. 2018 and it's out on Vimeo and it's a masterpiece. It's great. So these kids who get locked in a car in Houston and their mom goes into a job interview and how the parking lot freaks out. Um, But it feels so doable because it's a car and a parking lot. We all have access to that shit. Um, And I just love it. It's just like simple um, emergency and drama uh, that's taken directly from the headlines but how it actually happens in real life. I don't know. And then I say that, and it's like, you look at something like The Procedure, the three-minute short film that won Sundance to you know, the U.S. Jury Prize, and it's a fart joke. And it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what makes a good, a good sure. short film. It's, I guess, like, whatever keeps an audience's attention and um, makes them think and, and do something poignant and don't make it boring. Yeah.
0: When you're directing a film, uh, what's the atmosphere like on set?
1: Oh, it's hell. <laughs> um, it is. It's a lot of fun. I have. I think it's a lot of fun objectively. A lot of people come up to me afterwards and they're like, "That was the most fun film set that I've been on." We try and make it like a summer camp that isn't a cult. Uh, we're not a cult, no. Um, but no, we we try to make it as fun as possible for every department, and uh, it's it's really wild. Where it's like because we've never had any serious money or you know enough time to shoot the movie we're always sprinting. And so, like, every department is just constantly moving to get the thing that we all know we we already had. Like, there's some improv in the new movie because it's just ridiculous. It's about agencies in Hollywood, and we just wanted to make it seem fresh and ridiculous. Um, but for the most part, it's just every department sprinting as fast as they can to get the thing in the can um, because of our budgetary restraints. So I try and give out as many high fives as possible and... Every member of the casting crew is welcome in Video Village. This is an educational experience for all of us. Like I I, you know, got to hang out with Trey Schultz and Tony Asenda and Danny Madden behind camera on their sets and that was inspiration for me to get off of the couch and make my movies. And I try and treat it like a film school for anybody who's trying to make movies of their own and we always have an open editing room for anybody that wants to come in and sit in and and watch how the the movies get put together. Um, I don't know. I try and be the good person that I always wanted Hollywood to be.
0: Yeah. Have you run into any struggles um, making movies without Hollywood? Or have you found it to be easier?
1: Oh, all of them. Every struggle <laughs> you could possibly have. Are you kidding me? It's <laughs> fucking hell being an independent filmmaker. <laughs> I'm talking to you from a closet right now, Harrison. Uh, so, so um, yeah. I, I think, really, it's getting easier because of the technology. The, the only studio movie that I've made was The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And that came relatively easily because we had just won South by Southwest and gotten into Cannes for Thunder Road. And I had the script, and they were looking to do, you know, author driven low-budget horror movies that were elevated dramas or whatever. Um, and so we fit their quota. We were the best candidate for that quarter of the year or whatever. Um, And so we got that relatively easily. Um, I'm very glad that the movie turned out really well. I'm very proud of the movie. It was a ridiculous thing, shooting in freezing cold weather. But it was hell because you have 55 people on set and you can't pick up the camera and go, just fucking give it to me. I'm going to get this quick insert shot. We don't need to take an aircraft carrier to the grocery store. We can just shoot it like we're in a backyard still. We just happen to be on a mountaintop in Utah. And that's something that you can't do because of giant film you know, regulations and stuff. So that's why we made the beta test. We made the beta test with, you know, a 15-year gaffer. This is his first time shooting a feature film as a cinematographer. And I think I'm going to shoot with him forever, where it's, like, legitimately working at my tempo of, like, we got to go now, like, 10 Red Bulls in a row trying to get the footage. Um, I don't know. I find it to be incredibly freeing to make movies with your friends and not in necessarily the Hollywood system. But I think making my first one in the Hollywood system made me realize you don't need any of that bullshit you can still make movies with your friends and it can still it'll look better if you don't need all of that insane bullshit and i think a lot of that for us is a is a technological divide where we shot the beta test with um with quasar tubes this like tube lighting that's kind of like these ones where it's like very low energy you don't need giant generators um you don't need ballasts you can just put them in a corner and it looks beautiful and it's very lightweight. Um, and then obviously we shot on the Ari Alexa, which is a lighter camera than the stuff that we were shooting with in Wolf is No Hollow. It's like, it felt very compact and doable. And the image quality is better because we didn't need any of the frills. We had more time on set um, to make the minutia look good. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of that is, is going to be more accessible for filmmakers because of just the way that technology works. It increases exponentially because of Moore's Law.
0: So what do you think the greatest resource is for aspiring young filmmakers right
1: now, today? What it, I'm sorry, I lost the first part of that.
0: Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, what do you think the greatest resource is ah, resource. for aspiring young filmmakers?
1: Um, what is the greatest resource? Um, I think community, probably. I mean, what you guys have right now is really wonderful. And um i would be nowhere had i not like there's one way there there's you know something to learning through youtube tutorials and like staying up late and learning after effects and um and that's something you kind of have to do in any craft um but really learning something over sh- someone's shoulder when they're doing it you get to see how they use keyboard shortcuts that you don't know about and you're like oh i could steal that i could do that for my movies i did how did i not know about that um i feel like community is the most important thing in film um because You learn so much better that way and your your work gets so much better that way. Um Short of the Week is really wonderful, Vimeo is really wonderful. Uh yeah, any social like really just not being timid to use those platforms for what you're not supposed to use them for, of like finding a famous filmmaker's private Vimeo account because it's not, you know, very famous. You can just DM them and be like, hey, I'm this person, Derek C in France. I'm wondering if you would be a lab <laughs> mentor at our short-to-feature lab this year. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think y'all are doing fine. Social, social media is a wonderful resource, and just make sure your friends are... I guess kindness is another wonderful resource. Just be mm-hmm. kind to people. That's, that's something that's revolutionary in the film industry, sadly.
0: Okay, if you could uh, go back in time and tell yourself, your 20-year-old self,
1: one thing, what would it be? Don't marry that girl from Maine. Um, (laughs) No, I'm trying to think. What would be actually the thing that I would say? Um, Yeah, keep making movies with... People are still laughing. Uh, Sorry, I turned away from it. I didn't realize that joke would have killed. Um, I would say, yeah, keep making movies with your friends and never feel inadequate. That's the thing. Feeling inadequate was the thing that made me um, not get off the couch and do something because I thought, oh, no, it might not be perfect. And... um, a lot of my, a lot of my current stuff isn't still, so don't feel bad.
0: Did you have to uh, produce a lot of content to be able, uh, or to gain confidence in order to make the Thunder Road short, or um, I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to ask is, um, did you always have confidence uh, within yourself? For producing films or how were you able to do it? Never.
1: I still don't. When when you start writing a screenplay, you still feel like a fucking idiot. It doesn't matter how many trophies you have, you still feel like an idiot when you start out again. Um, No, I was a uh, wallflower for a long time. I was, when I was a producer, I was the most timid person at any of these film festivals. I would like hang out on the sidelines and then the directors would be these social butterflies. And I would think, how am I not like them? Why am I not like them? I didn't hand out my business card to a single person while I was here. Um, and I was really bad at that. And then, uh, and then something changed. I, I, I went to these short film programs at different film festivals around the world. I was lucky enough to travel with these movies sometimes. Um, and so your film, your thing that I produced would be in a program of 10 films and we would be one of ten, and eight of them would be phenomenal or really cool from around the world and then and then two of them would kind of suck and then that those sucky ones, I was like, "Oh wow, all you have to do is be better than those ones okay, maybe i could maybe I could do something um you'd be surprised as did the kind of stuff that gets programmed and becomes world renowned." And then that was the thing that got me confidence of like, I only have to be better than those motherfuckers. And then I'll, I'll be the just fine.
0: Um, so I've got two more questions before we move into the Q&A segment. Um, so I was really excited to interview today because I followed your career for a while um, and you're a big influence on my work. So I'm wondering if you could influence anyone, who would you or if you could interview anyone, who would you interview?
1: Oh, man. That's a dangerous question. Um, That's a dangerous question. Uh, In film, I assume, uh, there's an ex astronaut named James Halsell that I would love to sit down and interview, but he will not give me an interview. Um, uh, But outside of that, I would say, I mean, Alfonso Cuaron, right? I mean, I haven't talked to the guy, but I'm buddies now with Bill Hader, who is buddies with him, Uh, And so I kind of get all my Uncle Alfonso stories from him. Um, I don't know. I've been lucky enough. Like, if you make stuff and you put it out, like, fucking Simon Pegg reached out to me yesterday and I was emailing with him. Like, he saw Wolf of Snow Hollow on Netflix in London or whatever. Somehow he saw it. And, like, that's a fucking hero of mine. And it's weird that, like, if you put something out into the universe, you don't realize who's actually going to watch it. You always think it's going to be, you know, your friends and family. You have no idea who's going to watch these things. Um, I've been lucky enough that. That I've had cool people that have reached out and given me a thumbs up when I needed it the most. Nicolas Cage called me one time out of the blue and was like, hey, brother, you know, loves your thing, man. It's great. Uh, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. I think Alfonso's probably the answer, but I've been lucky enough to, to have that list become much shorter because people have reached out and are now buddies.
0: Does it still feel almost surreal when somebody that's higher up in the film industry reaches out to you to say, hey, I love your stuff?
1: Oh, it's, it's insane. I still have that wallflower feeling of like I'm a yeah. child and they're an adult. And I'm like, hey, yeah. I, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm a big fan. But then you realize like you've, you've made movies because you love these people and their movies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to love your movies. Like you're stealing yeah. their jokes, basically. Um, it's funny. I got to hang out with Steve Coogan, one of my favorite performers of all time. He plays Alan Partridge. And I've been watching him since I was in high school and admiring his work. And to sit with him, and he's, he saw Thunderbird about six times. And then I, I sat down to meet with him, and I said, Hi, I'm Jim. And he goes, Yeah, I know. And I was like, OK. And I kept it together for four hours straight. I was like, Oh, it's great. <laughs> Uninterrupted eye contact. He and I like talked for four hours. And then we were leaving. We saw Bong Jun Ho walk in. I was like, you, we, should, we should see him. It's Bong Jun Ho, this guy who made Parasite. And uh, and he goes, oh, you should go say something. And I said, no, you should go say something. You're fucking much more famous than I am. I made it out the door. He said, uh, thank you for h- meeting with me. He hugged me. He went upstairs. I walked out the sliding glass doors and I cried for about twenty five minutes straight. I was like, wow. And and his his executive who was walking out with me, she was like, are you okay? Is everything okay? And I was like, yep, yep, I'm fine. I'm sorry. It's just sorry about that. <laughs> Don't know what happened to me. I've just blacked out for four hours. Um, it's been cool it's i mean it's you still have that feeling of like as soon as it happens you don't realize that it's happening but you're becoming the next generation of filmmaking and it doesn't have there are no drum rolls for it you just keep doing it and then eventually someone knocks on your door and it's like hey i'm this guy you know it's weird yeah
0: um last question here now and uh everybody if you want to go ahead and write your q a questions in the chat um with a great body of work behind you and strong momentum forward, what's next?
1: <laughs> you make me sound like a real filmmaker. Uh, I mean, yeah. I I I don't know, dude. I'm doing um, I don't know. I I don't know. I want to do more of the heartbreaking comedy bullshit that we do. Um, I'm enjoying that. It it depends on what day you ask me. I'm doing um, yeah. I'm writing this like. Really cool Victorian horror movie where I'm researching like technology in that time period, and that's been really, um, that's really been been making me feel cool. Um, I, I'm doing a TV show or writing a TV show about astronauts that I'm recording a podcast. that I'm sending out this week um, should be done by tomorrow. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess like you never know what's coming. Like mm-hmm. you you write the stuff, you make the plans, you talk to people, and you're like, hey, I want to do this thing. And then they're like, actually, we don't want to do that thing. We want to do that third idea that you don't actually want to do anymore. We want that one. And then it's like, oh, I guess this is my next, okay, I guess this is my next feature. It's
0: weird. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. And now we can open it up for everybody else for Q&A section. So everyone, please put in your questions in the chat and I'll, uh, I'll read them out. Oh, man. Okay, so first oh, one is from Jarvis, who says, In Thunder Road, Jim had a great relationship with his friend Nate, who comes to check on him, even after their big fight at the police station. Who was your reference or inspiration for Nate, or rather, <laughs> Brother
1: Nathaniel? Brother Nathaniel! That's such a drunk thing to say that somebody, <laughs> Sorry. Um, um, I don't know. So a bunch of them. I, had, I have yeah. two very good friends who have been with me through Thick and Thin. My buddy Ben Wiesner... Um, who's my producer of you know all of my films and um and we were producers together before I ever ended up directing anything and uh and he's now my manager uh, like he's I'm his only client he has no business being a manager but he does a fucking great job managing me um uh he, is, he was huge in, in as an inspiration for for Nate and then my buddy PJ as well where you have friends um and that's, I guess, like a true friend to someone is that you can pull a gun on them in a parking lot and slap the shit out of them and get fired, and they still come over to your place and uh, make sure you're okay and not, uh, you know, jumping off of a balcony. Um, yeah. PJ and Ben were both that for me. And uh, I don't know. I, I hadn't seen that kind of friendship um, on film before, really. And um, and then Nikon, obviously. Nikon and I are buddies, and... Um, you know, he, him coming down to Austin, we had cast somebody else in the role, and then it was a bit of a Hollywood thing, and we realized that it, it wasn't going to work out about four days before we, start, before we started shooting with Nikon. And Nikon was just my buddy because of Sundance. Um, he was in a theater program there, and then we called him, like, can, I'm begging you, can you come down? He's like, I already memorized the script, dude. I'm the understudy. I'm coming down. And then uh, he was in a Target when I called him, returning a shirt. And we were like, Keep the shirt drive to the airport and book a flight for Austin, I'll Venmo you. And then that became how, yeah, I, I, that's it. He was, he was just, he's great. And um, I guess a combination of those three made me. Yeah.
0: Christian asks, uh, what's your biggest inspiration that isn't in film
1: or TV? Um, I'd love to answer intellectually and say something you know, about P.G. Woodhouse or Christopher Hitchens or, um, you know, something like that. But the public freakout subreddit is a really wonderful, (laughs) uh, insane community of videos that will give you unprecedented access to when shit hits the fan uh, around the world, particularly in America. And it feels like you're watching a very gritty Safdie Brothers movie. Um, But I I get on there a lot and just see what the real language is like when people are shouting at each other and how much of a scene you can create inside of a Walmart. Um, So I I think that would probably be my answer, unfortunately. Uh, Luke asks, Have you ever felt a block of creativity and how did you you deal with that? Um, Yeah, for about six years, I felt like I was a terrible filmmaker. Sorry, Harrison, I'm stealing your job. Um, No,
0: you're okay. uh,
1: I felt like I was a terrible filmmaker for a long time, and then I just started making smaller things and not being so precious with them, and instead went out and shot bullshit with a cell phone. And I was like, it's a cell phone thing. It's not going to be a big short film. But it was funny to make myself laugh and my friends laugh because of the stupid joke that we were doing in it. And then I that allowed me the freedom to not be so precious about it and then i was like oh, i'll be cool and i just kind of built off of instead of my ideas and not feeling creative or be feeling blocked or something it didn't matter the writing it was like i've got the camera i gotta do something and then that was a really um helpful way to to break those those blocks yeah. um i'm just gonna keep going through it i'm so sorry go uh, for it yeah okay. just um, rapid fire why would that astronaut be your top interview uh James Donald Halsell on June 16th, 2016, uh, drove his car while drunk. He's a five-time retired astronaut. Drove his car while drunk into the back of a car, killing two young black girls outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, and uh, they still haven't gotten justice. And the trial is still pending. I knew court date yesterday of June or June 17th or something like that. It's an insane story that I don't know why anybody in the media hasn't covered. I don't know why it's taken me to be like, why hasn't anybody talked about this thing yet? Um, Second time, second DUI, the judge threw out the ability for him for the prosecutors to say it was a second DUI. It's an insane case and um, I am just fascinated with people who have left the atmosphere and then come back to Earth and have PTSD. I'm fascinated by that. Anyway, um... Let's see, next question. Thunder Road had quite... That was a weird answer, I'm sorry. Um, Thunder Road (laughs) had quite a lot of long takes that would be hard to redo. The Homeless Man in the Puddle comes to mind. How many times did you rehearse that scene? Yeah, so um, a lot. So when you're doing long takes, there's a thousand different departments that have to be perfectly ensemble. Um, The boom mic can't be in frame, so we have to crawl through each shot at about a fourth speed, and it's usually me going through and being like, and then I have him here... Is that good? Focus is good. Okay, and all of that kind of stuff that you have to prep beforehand. Um, to while you're on set, there's no point in doing it when you're not on set. You have to think about it a thousand times before you get on set and go to the location and scout it and kind of understand how where the frame is going to be and everything. Um, it's a fucking nightmare, but if you can get it it's like you'll never be able to recreate that you feel like Jackie chan or something like kicking the seven people in the shot and then their shoot comes off and knocks somebody out it's like you do it 25 times if you nail it nobody can recreate it it's a wonderful feeling um yeah i don't know you just have to think about it a thousand times and then when you're when you're shooting it you do the first few takes without the puddle it was a synthetic puddle we were able to do it we're just on the ground uh Frank Mosley, who plays the transient guy, um, didn't have any water on him for the first few takes. Then we filled it up with water. And then you do one because we only have two changes of clothes that day and we have to shoot the parking lot shouting scene after lunch. So I can't blow out my voice. There's a thousand things that you have to think about. So we shot that in the morning. Yeah, Luke, we shot that shot in the morning. We did it six times, two times in full uniform. Um, We would replace the uniform because I get the slushy thrown on my dick in the the first shot. (laughs) Um, And then you break for lunch and then you scream and cry and shoot the parking lot monologue thing afterwards. Um, It's a lot of prep. It's a lot of marks. But if you've rehearsed it a thousand times in a golf course at midnight across the street from where you're living in Austin, it goes a lot smoother and you just tell the crew what to do. Um, let's see. Sounds like an
0: emotional day. That is
1: really quite interesting because I first heard of Thunder Road by a Reddit post. Maybe it was an AMA. Um, I'm a Redditor of like 13 years, which is really weird. Um, and I was just a lurker for a long time and then I started making movies and became you know, a little bit more prevalent on the r/filmmakers subreddit trying to get people to feel okay making movies and not feeling incompetent or um inadequate. And then uh and then I started posting stuff being like, "Hey, I'm making this movie," and people helped to share the Kickstarter, which is crazy. And then it fucking blew up on Reddit when I posted a picture of myself next to the, the poster. And yeah, Reddit is incredible. Um, do you have any idea uh, that you really want to make happen but can't for some reason? I've always wanted to make this kids' adventure movie about movies, but it's just too expensive. And uh, maybe someday they'll take me more seriously, but they haven't yet. Come on, I'm on a roll. More Questions? Rapid fire. Here we go. Alan Kim. Uh, What has been the most fulfilling moment for your career so far? Meeting Steve Coogan. Meeting Steve Coogan. 100%. Um, Yeah, meeting Steve. Uncle Steve. Um, Yeah, I, I guess that's it of just like having those small benchmarks of like, you know, you can get good reviews from Variety, but if they gave me a bad review, I would be like, all right, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So. Meeting someone that you have grown up watching and loving, that's, that, that's been really, um, really fulfilling. Um, most expensive mistake you've ever made on a set? Oh, man. Um, it hasn't been on a set usually. Uh, there was What well, we did for this film, I, I was a neurotic and I said, I want to mix the movie myself. Um, I want to do it inside of Adobe Audition which is a program that speaks natively to Adobe Premiere. Most of the times when you're finishing a movie, you have to go to Pro Tools, and you lose a lot of the settings that you spent the last year putting into the, the edit of the movie, like um, different sound effects, different you know, like uh, equalizers and filters and stuff that you put on stuff. You lose it all when you go to Pro Tools. So instead I was like, no, I want to do this thing. And then we got halfway through mixing it. And I realized that I had exported real 2 in twenty three nine eight instead of twenty four frames per second and so we had to buy uh yeah Melissa we had to buy uh, software that would uh, convert it to twenty four and it was quite quite pricey to do that uh, to do that in, in a studio let's see I think there's a movie in the story of the astronaut i I don't know so that's kind of what our TV show about astronauts is about it's about astronaut PTSD and then having to move to Cape Canaveral, Florida, the armpit of America. Next question: What is the? Mo- Sorry if anybody's from there. No offense. Should have checked. What's the most important lesson you've learned that has been a positive effect on your film? Um. um there was a good quote that my ex-girlfriend wrote into one of the scripts um, on in the margins where I wrote something that I thought was clever. Um, that only I liked, and she wrote, people don't like that shit. And I've just abbreviated that, and then I put that into so many of my scripts where or, uh, or I have to remind myself that I'm making this movie for an audience. Um, that's that's something helpful. Let's see. Um, what do you think about working with a writing partner versus writing a script by yourself? Which do you prefer? Um, I hate to say it, I prefer working with a writing partner. It's very lonely when you're writing a script by yourself, and then... You, you write for like three or four weeks and you come out of the cave and you're like i've written something that's a masterpiece and then you, you do it live or you show it to people and they're like yeah it kind of sucks it's you know you should have, you should have written it with us um so i would say um working with pj like i co-wrote the new movie uh the beta test and then also the space tv show with pj and uh it's really fulfilling because we use writer duet which is a software, it's like a website, I don't know if you all know it, it's a like screenwriting software where you can see it appear in real time like it's Google Doc, it's a shared Google Doc. So when we're acting out the scenes a thousand times, I'll think of something clever and I'll write it down and then look up to PJ and I can see his first reaction reading the line and if he laughs out loud, I'm like, Cool, that's it, that's in the movie and that's really helpful. It becomes the first audience uh, for the movie. Let's see. Um, uh, this is a largely un- unsubstantiated take but I have the vision of you making a film with Nicolas Cage. Thoughts? Um, I would love to make a movie with Nicolas Cage. I think, I mean, Adaptation is like one of my favorite movies. He's so phenomenal in that film. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would I would love to. I would absolutely love to do that. I don't know what that project will be, but I'm sure, I mean, it, if we could have e- the two of us screaming at each other, I think there's a, a cinematic universe where that has to exist in. Let's see. Um... P-D-L-T-S is great. Oh, people don't like that shit. Yeah, those are the abbreviations. Thank you, Christian, for doing that. Um, is Writer Duet Pro worth it? How much is it? It's like $11 a month. Look, I don't know. I use Celltext when I'm writing by myself, and that's cheap. That's free, I think. You can download Celltext by yourself. Maybe that has functionality like Writer Duet nowadays. I don't know. Um, okay, Harrison, save me from this. I don't know what I'm doing anymore.
0: It's okay. We're just about wrapped up now. Um... Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it was great my pleasure. Great insights. Fantastic Thank you answers. for having
1: me. It was my pleasure.
0: It was, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm sure everybody's learned a lot. I know I have. Um, but, yeah. Thank you.
1: Go make movies. Take it easy, y'all.
0: Thank you for listening to The Real Podcast. If you haven't already, you can learn more about us at capclubberkeley.com and on Facebook and Instagram at capclubberkeley. We feature interviews with film industry professionals three to four times a semester, so we'll see you next time.